Hi folks, welcome. When I started the Man Overseas blog, I said that if you were entertained, educated, or elevated, then to please subscribe. Now I have the Man Overseas podcast, and I hope that it accomplishes the same. I hope that it entertains, educates, and or elevates you. Today's guest did all three for me when I was a kid, um, and we've connected or reconnected only within the last few years. And I haven't been more excited about a guest than I am about today's guest. His name is Mr. Tom Abadie, although I've never called him anything other than Coach Tom. <laughs> um, he's the man who first taught me the values of discipline and preparation and teamwork. I, I played a lot of sports for a lot of years and had many, many coaches, including several at the collegiate level. Uh, but Coach Tom is the best coach I ever had. I mean, he's just a, an incredible coach and an incredible man. So, Mr. Tom Abadie, welcome to the Man Overseas Podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. This is a thrill for me, Coach. We're sitting here in New Orleans, Louisiana. Did you grow up far from here? I grew up uh, not very far from here, across the river in New Orleans. Uh, we, I was one of seven kids. Uh, we went to St. Alphonsus Grade School and walked the block and went to Redemptress High School. Is that still there, Redemptress High School? It's still there, but it's no longer uh, the school, and in the, in the both churches are still there, but no longer are, is it a, you know, a, a working school. Mm. It's, it was a Redeemer Seton before, uh, before Katrina, and that all got flooded, and it's, it's no more. So you went to Redemptress High School. Was that an all-boys school? No, it was not. It was the only co-educational Catholic school in the city of New Orleans. Mm. And the district we played in was... St. Aloysius, Jesuit, Holy Cross, and we would, and our enrollment would throw us, the girls would throw us into the enrollment number, but we really should have been playing at a lower classification. So we were playing up at what today's standard would be, we'd be playing up in classification based on what, uh, you know, our boy enrollment was. So you mean like 5A That's correct. at that time it was maybe? It was 3A. Oh, okay. It was 3A. I got you. And so you talked about playing in, a, in the district, which is a pretty popular or competitive district. It always has been, right? The Catholic League in New Orleans. And then you went on. So you played baseball and basketball in high school. Is that That's right? correct. Okay. That's correct. And then you went on to play college baseball at Nickel State, which I did too. <laughs> That's pretty cool. We both roamed center field about 30 years apart. Tell me about your college experience. I know you played in was it the Division Two championship? Correct. National championship. national championship game, yes. Tell me about that. So you played center field. Were you the leadoff hitter? I was a, a three-year leadoff hitter and played center field. Um, we, go into, we went into the final day against San Fernando Valley State having to win one game, and we lost a doubleheader mm. uh, to San Fernando Valley State. And we came in second. So uh, nobody remembers who comes in second. <laughs> <laughs> so who was your coach? Our coach was uh, Raymond Didier, a very hard-nosed, fair man. But uh, he was a disciplinarian, and he wanted things done his way. Mm -hmm. So anybody who had a problem with doing it his way, uh, he found a w he didn't find a way. They, they just seemed to separate. 
<laughs> people just seemed to move on because they couldn't live with his haircut, his haircut uh, requirements. Our sideburns couldn't be any longer than the, this little knob in your ear, and you had to be clean shaven. Your shoes had to be polished. You had to be well dressed, shirt tails tucked in. Mm. Even even going to class every day, you couldn't have your shirt tail out. You had to have your shirt tail in. Uh, when you hit the field every every ball game, you had to have your shoes polished in case the ball would hit you on the foot <laughs> and it would leave a scuff mark of back then they didn't have very much very much uh, liquid polish. It was all the paste. Mm. So the paste would leave a scuff on you on you on the ball so he could show the umpire. <laughs> <laughs> and now the field is named after Ray Didier, That's right? That's correct. At, at Nichols. That's okay. correct. That's really cool. That's correct. I want to talk about your coaching. So when I was 12 years old, you coached our all-star basketball team to a world championship. Correct. And it's one of my favorite memories. Um, our group had been playing together since we were eight years old as an all-star team. And the all-star season is pretty grueling, probably even more so on parents because you're practicing every day, you're traveling almost every weekend. Um, do you remember your thought process when you decided to coach us? Because I don't believe you coached us as eight-year-olds. Is that right? That's correct. Now, I didn't start coaching the group until they were 10 years old. Mm -hmm. But coaching prior to that, I realized that when I took this group over, I had just too much information. I tried to coach kids anywhere from 10 to 12 years old. Just uh, there's too much information. I made a promise to myself that I would make it easier as far as offense, defense, uh, schemes that we were going to run were going to be easy, out of bounds plays. I mean, just things that were going to be really easy, and we'd let the other team worry about you know catching on to our schemes. And but on the other hand, I had a uh, knew coming in, I had a talented group. Mm. The, so you recognized that when we were eight or nine and you said, I am going to coach this team because I see major potential in them? I was hoping to be able to coach them. The decision who was going to be the coach is made at the end of the year. Now, of course, during that time, a couple of those years, I was the president of the organization and I sat in. But one of the things I changed as the president of an organization was to ensure you got the best players on the team, you could nominate anybody you wanted on it for the all-star team. Who could? The coach of the coach of their teams. The regular season teams. That's correct. If you had 12 players, he could nominate all 12, but he couldn't vote for them. Okay. The votes came out the opposing coaches in the meeting. Okay. Well, I, I didn't know that, how the yes. team was chosen. Yes. I okay, did. so did you have to petition to be the coach? Well, you put your name up. The group in, in, the, in the meeting would vote on it, who would, who would be the coach of the team. How did they know that you had the knowledge and the skill set to... They didn't. Uh, they really didn't. Uh, they knew I had done it before. Um, any coach that you had prior to that, would have been successful with the group. Now, would we have been world champions? I'm not, I don't know. I don't know that. We, I had some great assistant coaches. 
Well, I get a vote on that. <laughs> I'm going to say that that probably would not have happened. I always, I always got the sense that you weren't like one of the dads coaching. So you had a son on the team, but it felt like we had a coach who had come in from the college ranks or something. How were you able to communicate with 10, 11, 12-year-olds in a way that we could digest it and understand it? and perform at a high level. Because one of the times that we connected on Facebook, I had given a talk to the Nickel State football team. And prior, when I was preparing for that talk, I thought I need to simplify things to where I get myself in the mindset of a college kid because I'm so far removed, right? This is 20 years later. I haven't been in college in 20 years. So, is that something that you had to work on and try to identify with 10, 11, 12-year-olds to kind of get inside our mindset to, to best communicate effectively with us? Well, so, several things come to mind. Uh, in my years of working and going to different schools, they always said, write your letter to your audience. Don't use big words especially if you don't know what they mean. <laughs> I was fortunate enough to coach older kids. I realized that the older kids couldn't do what some of the younger kids could do. So I had to simplify talking to them. And when it came down to the younger guys, it was really easy to have it simplified. I knew I had to get it even simpler. And on the other hand, I had a, a practice schedule. And I didn't take the, I, I used the practice schedule but I only did, uh, I only used the, the time allotted to teach stuff, like an, an offensive play or a defensive play. We, I only used the time allotted, but used it at our practices daily to reinforce what, we've, what we taught. I didn't try to teach it all at one time and say, okay, you got it now, go learn, you got it, learn it, come back with it. I didn't give out playbooks, I didn't do any of that because I just wanted to go walk through it with guys and uh, run a certain offense against against a man-to-man defense, mm -hmm. as an example. There's a man named Charlie Munger who I quote quite a bit on my blog and on my podcast. He's the right-hand man of Warren Buffett, very successful, very wise man. He says that more important than the will to win is the will to prepare. And you were so well prepared for every game. Every time out, you had a play ready. You had this little dry erase basketball court with the magnets on it, and they were all numbered, which represented the position that you played. So I was always the three, because I was the wing. <laughs> Can you talk about your will to prepare during that time and where that comes from? I would guess the will to prepare came from my high school coach, which was uh, Skeeter Fayard, who was a uh, who was a well-known sports figure in the city of New Orleans. He was a baseball guru and then from Ray Didier. So preparation, I didn't think he could prepare too much. We had films of the games that I'd, I'd watch. You probably, you guys didn't know that, but mm -hmm. I was watching films of the game that somebody would make in the stands. So uh, what was the what was the best for our team is we put, could put 12 people on the court, or 10 at a, five at a time, but we could put, we had 12 people who could play. 
a lot of teams didn't have that many people. So some of them weren't good as others. And when they hit the court, we knew who they were. So with that in mind, we, uh, we, we knew who to pick on, so to speak. Yeah. <laughs> so that would be game prep where you're watching video, which, yeah, I didn't know that. That's impressive. But in terms of fundamentals, we were exceptionally prepared. And I didn't realize it until I had gone on and moved to Texas and played basketball in Texas. And I realized that my teammates didn't have near the basketball intelligence that I had. And that's not a credit to me. It's a credit to you. Um, but that was all instilled in us, instilled in us at a very early age. You would have us dribbling you would have us doing dri dribbling drills and we'd wear these goggles that had plastic underneath the eyes so that we couldn't see the floor beneath us. And we did drills where we made sure that we could see the ball and our man at all times. And you taught us how to, if we're blocked out for a rebound, how to put our knee underneath the rebounder and push him underneath the basketball goal. These were all little fundamental things that I realized when I moved on that other people didn't know. And even like free throws at the end of practice, you did that because we needed to be able to execute free throws when we were exhausted, right? After, Absolutely. Um, after practice. Absolutely. I also know that when you coached baseball, you would have your players practice fielding ground balls with pieces of wood, right? So that <laughs> they would use two hands. Um, so where did you develop this mindset for the importance of fundamentals? I guess back in high school, I, I had a, a, our basketball coach was a fundamental type guy. He had to be able to dribble with both hands. He had to be able to pass. Uh, back then there was a lot of man-to-man -man defense, which we played. Uh, there was some zone, but uh, that was before the three-point line. So uh, it, we had, to, we had to play a lot of man-to-man -man defense. So uh, baseball was the same thing. But what I did notice by going to different, before my kids were even old enough to play and watching young kids play, a lot of people, they, kept, they all caught with one hand. Nobody, liked, nobody could catch a ground ball. So to get them used to catching ground balls, you always have to use two hands. So we, I, brought, I brought out the wooden gloves and we did some rolling drill that you catch it with two hands and roll it back to your partner and we used the rolling drills the dribble glasses was something that i happened to see online probably in somewhere yeah well it was pre-internet but i've hit i've hit i've seen dribble glasses mm. and and my question was what do you use dribble glasses for <laughs> and then when i absolutely saw what was going on mm -hmm. they were they couldn't see the basketball you couldn't watch the ball be you couldn't watch the ball being dribbled yeah so everybody had a pair of dribble glasses and we dribbled the length of the courts and we and then we started incorporating passing drills off the dribble drills and one of the things that always amazed me and several people who watched our practices because if you remember there would be somebody in the stands taking notes watching what we were doing and i could turn my back to the practice and listen to the balls hit the floor and know it was being done correctly. Mm. I want to talk about the Harvard step test. <laughs> Even saying those words 
brings back dread because after school, if we knew, so after school we would go to practice, and if we knew that we were going to be doing the Harvard step test, maybe you couldn't eat as much between school and practice. <laughs> and so sometimes we would whisper to each other as players, like, uh, you think Coach Tom is going to make us do the Harvard step test? <laughs> so it was something that we, we dreaded, but it was part of the conditioning that you had us do in practice. And it's excellent cardio. If anybody listening is interested in doing it, I will link to it in the show notes because now you can Google Harvard step test. Um, but back then, it was the scariest thing. We didn't know anything about it. It was something coach introduced to us in practice. And it's tough because, by the way, when you Google it, you will see that everybody does it slow. They just walk. They walk the Harvard step test. But the way that you conducted it was you blew the whistle. We would go as hard as possible. on the. So we would start with our left leg. And we probably did it for 30 seconds, and it seemed like 30 minutes. <laughs> and then you would blow the whistle to stop, we'd get a little break, and we would do the other foot. And so, where did you get the idea for the Harvard Step Test? Introduced to the Harvard Step Test by Ray Didier. Ah. And uh, we, we played, where we played was on the girls' diamond. I mean, that's, that was the baseball field at Nichols when I played. And we were we were dressed right across the street. That's where our dressing room was. Well, we did the Harvard step test during the fall, and we'd have to do it on. The, we'd have to step up down on the on the where you would sit to dress. So uh, don't worry, I hated it as much as you guys <laughs> did because you'd bust your, you'd be busting your, you'd bust your shins and people would trip and fall and. Uh, but one of the big question, one of the questions I, I was asked when we were uh, at our 25, I guess that was our 25 year reunion at the Biddy Basketball Tournament in Thibodeau, and which you are out of, out of the country, uh, the guy said, you're gonna make us do the Harvard Steps test today, <laughs> or shoot the basketball against the wall. I said, no, not today. We're not gonna do any of that today. That's right, that was a drill that I forgot. So you would have us line up in the aisle of the bleachers and we would face the bleachers and then we would throw the, we would act as though we were shooting, there was no hoop, and we would throw the ball against the wall and it was designed, I guess, to keep our elbow in when technique, we were shooting. Technique. All technique stuff we were, we were watching. We were so fundamentally sound. I remember another drill where you would get in front of us at half court and we would all, the team would face you on one side of the court and then you would act as though you were dribbling one way and we had to be in the defensive position and watch you and then you would change angles and we would hurry up and switch angles. So all these things made us just a really fundamentally sound group and none of that I appreciated until much later on in my life because all of that discipline, I mean, you get so much discipline from playing sports. I figured that we were doing all that conditioning so that we could play more man-to-man -man defense. We played a lot of 2-3 and we played a lot of man-to-man, -man. probably more 2-3 though. Well, in the course of a ball game, if it was a tight ball game, this was just something I felt that some people would try to play you man-to-man -to, -man to intimidate you. Mm -hmm. So, and it is an intimidating defense if you know how to play it. Mm -hmm. And if you remember the team we beat in the finals, Chester, Pennsylvania, they went to man-to-man -man defense. So we switched into our flex offense, which is a, is a complicated thing for young kids. That's one of the things, as I mentioned earlier, that we taught a little bit at a time so that we get comfortable with it and we just kind of reviewed 
So we ran a couple of options off the the flex offense, and if you remember right, you were passing it into clinch, shooting layups. We, we shot a lot of layups in, in that minute, but people are trying to 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 scare you with the man-to-man defense by intimidation. But if they don't know how to play man-to-man defense, we're going to take them apart with the flex. Mm. And So the offense that you called this flex offense, it involved a lot of picks? Correct. Yeah. Correct. Is that the best way to play offense against a man-to-man defense? Uh, you, if you watch college basketball today, it's it's changed. It's changed a whole lot. They, they kind of... They almost run. Looks like they run the offense we did when we were against the uh, zone, where we'd pass and run away, and a guy would fill the top and pass and run away and fill the top, and kind of like those things. But uh, but they're doing like a weave, and I, I think they get closer and closer, looking for an opening and drive to the basket, and and, sh- and shoot the ball as they drive to the basket or pass off. So um, the the flex was something I. I but here again, I didn't want to have a whole lot of stuff because we just needed to be really fundamentally sound in whatever we did, whether it was the, our flex offense, our, our zone offense, our out-of-bounds play. Everything had to be really simple, and we had to run them really well. And we did. I think because you were such a disciplinarian, we were more defensive-minded, or that was something at least that you focused on. I remember if we had five games in a row where the opposing team scored less than X amount of points, we would get a pizza party at Mr. Gaddy's Pizza. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was that was an incentive. I was a much better offensive player than a defensive player. Did that frustrate you at all? Not a bit. <laughs> Not a bit. Well... <laughs> First of all, my opinion is offense settles tickets and defense wins championships. <laughs> so we won our championship on defense. You may remember this talk, but uh, I can remember sitting there and looking at you guys, especially when you were 12 years old, all young men by this time. And I said, guys, I don't have enough basketballs to make all of y'all happy. <laughs> you know, it was, we could only play with one basketball. And of course, we've been together for two years scoring some outrageous amount of points in some of these games we played. But I think that we were to, we were a solid group because the kids liked each other. They were all mm-hmm. friends. They grew up together. And we know each other's families. And it was just a, it was just a great time. It's, it's something, it's, it's a time I think of most, almost every day. Something clicks in my head to think about that, that particular team. It was a special team. And you have said that we went through a lot of highs and incredibly sad lows during those years. And you messaged me after I wrote an article called Developing Mental Toughness by Digging Deep Within. And I called it the years that shaped me. And those years were 1991 to 94. And you were a huge influence on my life at a time that I needed it most. And we had something I wrote about in that article. We had a kid whose family was driving home from one of the games in New Orleans that we had, and a drunk driver ran a stop sign, and his dad was killed. And then not long thereafter, I had to deal with my own personal uh, problems. Did any of that affect how you approached 
your coaching or how you handled us individually, those of us who were going through a tough time? Well, at the 10-year-old age, when, when, uh, when uh, the player's father got killed, we were playing in the world tournament, and we had to go back the very next morning and play, if you remember correctly. And, of course, we were playing an old nemesis, old nemesis uh, in uh, Dallas. And um, I can remember saying, guys, go out and do the very best you can do. And that's all we can do. And we lost the ball game, but it was, you know, I think we learned a valuable lesson. There's bigger things in life than winning ball games. And, um, you know, we had in in days to come we had the funerals and and it was just a sad thing and, and to this day uh, his mom still lives down the block from me mm-hmm. and I see her in church in the morning she has since been remarried but I do see her in church in the morning and in your situation it was a special situation but you, it's it's where you have to be you have to stay within the team but you have to be firm and not give in to the to the feelings that you have that you want you you just want to hug them and take them home and make it right or buy them a malt or whatever whatever the situation could be you had to stay within you had to stay within the game and we just had to coach the game and I knew being around the guy the, the kids you were going to be just fine you know, and of course, when you left the gym, I, I, I didn't know what you were doing. And you had your struggles based on the stories I've seen. But when when you were in the gym, that's when you were the happiest. It was. Yeah, we were a selfless bunch that really lifted each other up and made each other better. And I, I had never been on a team that was less concerned, each individual player was less concerned about their stats and who scored the most points. Um, and I, I think that you helped to foster that and facilitate that atmosphere. You were a guy that wouldn't have put up with that. Like you said, guys, there aren't enough balls to go around. Um, and just what you embodied we were like a guy that you were a coach that wouldn't take any excuses so if I had any kind of excuse the last thing I would have done is talk to you like tell you that I have some kind of excuse as to why I'm loafing today or you know why I'm taking a playoff or what I'm dealing with personally and that served me so well later in life because I've never been a guy to make excuses about anything and so I just think that it it all started at that time um, a funny story, I wrote about a negotiation that I had in Hong Kong, and you shared with me a story about a negotiation that you had with a referee that involved me. T, do you remember that story? Yes, I do. <laughs> what happened? Um, we're, we're playing Morgan City, and uh, you and the Morgan City player were going at each other. You all guarding each other, going at each other, blocking out each other. You know, we taught blocking out within the rules of basketball, which meant there was going to be physical, physical block out, physical defense is what, 
and within the rules of basketball. And the referee called a timeout and he came and talked to the coach of the other team. And, the other, and then he came over to talk to me and the other coach came with me. And the coach said, uh, the referee said, look, your number, I don't remember your number, 23, or whatever your number was, and your number so-and-so and their number so-and-so going at it. He said, I want you to calm him down. I said, Mr. Ref, I said, we're trying to play within the rules of the basketball. And he said, well, if you don't calm him down, I'm going to have to, you know, kick him out the game. I said, well, kick them both out the game. Because that was their best player. That was their best player. So, <laughs> so kick them both out the game. So uh, he didn't want to do that. And nobody got kicked out the game. And we went on We went on to be successful in the ball game. So. <laughs> That's a great story. Have you ever considered going into coaching full time? Uh, no, I, I really never did. I, mm. I, early on, when I worked, the company I worked for, most of the people coming to work for Texaco were coming out of education to make more money. So I knew then, then and there that there were, the, the money in education just wasn't there. Uh, I had a brother who was a college basketball coach, never did approach the financial stability that, that people were making in, in, well, in business. So, uh, I like doing it. I coached with him later on in, in my career as an assistant, learned a lot of things from him, but I, I never did really consider coaching as a for a living. Yeah, it's funny you say that because before we started recording, we were talking about the Nichols State head football coach here, Coach Rebo, awesome guy. When we were in Houston, he treated us so well, uh, my wife and I, when I spoke. the. Um, the coaches at Nichols, since I've been there, at least in the baseball program, have all left to pursue interest in the private sector, which we know implies that they're going for more money. Is there a way to keep some of these better coaches? I mean, you and I have talked about uh, Rebo, that's what I was referencing earlier, Coach Rebo, about how he's probably going to get more money thrown at him to go to a bigger school where his talents are needed. How can we keep people at Nichols, the ones who are starting to thrive? Uh, well, you know, when you look at, when you look what they pay the LSU coaches, I mean, I know that's the top of division one. I mean, when you talk about the LSUs, the Alabamas, I mean, you're talking about, you know, six-figured coaches in some cases, some guys make seven figures. I mean, whoever thought into they'd be paying half a million dollars to coach baseball, a sport we loved. What? I never ever thought that would happen. So, is there anything we can do? Unless there's some private organization. Now, there's some high schools I know that are starting private organizations to keep the good coaches. Mm. So. You know, is there something out there where uh, you could you could uh, help put more money in his pocket? I don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm. It, it's uh, but we, there's a good one there. There's there's two good ones. Seth is Seth Thibodeau's a good coach in baseball, and so is is is, is Coach Rebo. 
I was going to mention Seth next. Yes, he was the Southland Conference Coach of the Year in maybe his sec only his second or third year, 2015, I believe. Yeah, I always enjoy visiting with Seth when he is in Houston, too. Heck, heck of a guy, heck of a recruiter. I want to talk about relationships and parenting. You said that when you first started coaching your kids, and this is something you told me privately before we started recording, but that when you first started coaching your kids, you were too hard on them. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, absolutely. Um, my oldest son took most of the brunt of the uh, of the criticism where the where the youngest one. You always you always think that they shouldn't act like the other kids are acting because they're your kids, <laughs> you know. So I know one of the things I always did was when I was talking, I expect everybody to listen. And the reason we practiced in the gym when it was just, we could just get it, is because I can get the attention. And one of the things I said is, I'm not gonna holler. I'm gonna talk at this level, and that's the level I'm gonna talk. So if somebody's little brother was in the gym bouncing a basketball, we made him stop so I could, so I could talk. So I wanted people to listen. If I wanted somebody to holler, I'd get one of the other coaches to holler. <laughs> I just didn't want to keep communicating the same thing. It was taking up time because we allotted a certain amount of time child practices and we wanted to get it done and get off the court so you guys could go study, uh, eat supper, shower to get to bed. Uh, that's all important stuff. And, you know, rest is an important thing when you're playing sports. Yeah. Can you talk about the value of your assistant coaches when you were – coaching us and how their oh. assistance enabled you to just focus on coaching, right? Absolutely. They they all were, they all bought into the to the offenses and defenses, the, the plans that we had made to to the plays we were gonna run, the places we were gonna go. There was one one coach in particular, he took care of all the reservations at the hotels and he kept our score our scorebook for us. And then the other two coaches were, were on-hand guys that ran the drills. As I mentioned earlier, I could turn my back and just listen to the practice. These guys were running those portions of the practice that I didn't have to watch. And it allowed me to go out and, and watch film of, of even college teams playing and watch how they guarded a good player. Uh, or how they ran a certain play, uh, an out-of-bounds play, or to to be successful. So those guys were just valuable, valuable to people to me. Was Miss Judy, your wife, hard on you because you were hard on your kids? Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And it's uh, it's an eye-opening, it's a it's an eye-opening thing. And and she was right. Mm. You know. Um, We'd come home and, and, and one of them would be crying because daddy was mean to me at practice, and, <laughs> you know, and uh, I would say, no, I wasn't. I said, you were acting like everybody else. And I said, she said, well, he's only 10. Why can't he act like everybody else, you know? So, uh, but yeah, she, she, uh, she didn't like some of the things I would do. Uh, in some cases, some of the people didn't like who I was playing and they would tell her, 
like they knew she was going to tell me. <laughs> so, and she sure did. In most cases, she told me. And I said, look, we, I only have one basketball. I'd give her the same answer. I got one basketball, and we're going to do the best with it with what we got. Did you have any problems with parents? You don't have to be specific, but I can't imagine coaching a team like ours that was so focused on winning. I can only imagine that you had dads who were second-guessing decisions that you would make or moms who were concerned that their kid wasn't getting to play, yet they were spending money on hotels. How did you deal with that? Well, one of the things was I was always, I seemed to, I was always focused on the journey. And I didn't realize that until we were inducted to the Hall of Fame uh, for our 1970 baseball team at Nichols. Uh, our captain is a guy who's a very successful football coach at St. Charles Catholic, Frank Monica. And Frank was the spokesman for our team when we were inducted. In his, after his senior year, he was the student assistant to Coach Didier. And we were so focused on the goal as players, we didn't realize the journey that we took to get there. So I was focused on the journey where you guys were going because through the years, I knew we had a real opportunity to win. Something that everybody doesn't experience at that level. And for a small town from, of Thibodeau, Louisiana, to win a World Biddy Basketball Championship was very important to me. I remember one of the assistants, the, the man who you said took care of reservations. I remember him saying after we won that world championship that we were in the locker room. This is right after we cut the nets. He said, you guys may not appreciate this right now, but someday you will. And I remember thinking, no, this is great. I didn't get it. And it, it took years until I had a chance to reflect on just how hard we worked to achieve something that I don't think we thought was possible. Like we didn't know what was happening. Kind of like you were saying, we were focused on the journey when we were nine, 10, 11. And we were getting better and we were getting good and we were so fundamentally sound. But that process so became part of our character. Like you went, you went about your daily life later in life a certain way and you realized, wait a minute, that was all informed by that experience. Like that is when it all started. Every one of the kids on that team today are successful adults. I mean, that is something I, is that why you get emotional when you talk about it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I see them, I, I, see, I see a lot of the guys, uh, they're good fathers, married people, uh, got kids, they're involved in it, they're involved in sports with their kids. Um, I, I've lost track of one guy, uh, Blake Johnson. Uh, I just, we've just lost track of him, but he, but all the rest, the guys I see around, if my grandson's playing in the baseball game, I see 
I see one guy and his kids and his dad who helped coach, and you know, I, I see them all the time. But uh, they they'll become good parents, good dads, good providers for their families, and that's that's really important. I keep going back to that team, and um, because it had such a big impact on me, and I think that there's so much that I will continue to learn when I reflect on that experience. And, and one of those things would be the relationship with Scott, who was my age at that time, your son, Scott. You showed no favoritism because in invitational tournaments that didn't mean much, we would have like a, a team A and like a one A. And in practice, we would battle against each other and you divided them up to where the top five, it wasn't an A and a B team. You divided them to be competitive against each other in practice. And so the, the invitational tournaments that didn't mean much, you would start team one, let's call her team A, and then the second quarter, team A1 would come in, and then the next game, you would reverse it. Correct. As the games got more important, it seemed that you would make sure that at the end of the game, the top five were on the court. That, I'm sure, was deliberate, right? Correct. Your son was not in that top five. That's correct. How, do you, how did you think about that at that time? It was, I was coaching the game. It was part of the game. Uh, he had... He had his talents when we needed him, we could always run him in and out the game. And I'm not just talking about him, I'm talking about any of the other five or seven that was sitting on the bench. I could run him in and out if somebody was in foul trouble, give him a break. Uh, 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 we were running up and down the court, somebody needed a blow for a couple of minutes, so we could run people in and out. That's the important part. I mean, at some point, you gotta pick your top five players to match what your opponent is putting on the floor. Because from the big cities like New Orleans or Houston or, or, or Pennsylvania, they pick from a bigger pool of players than we do. We were picking from a league that had maybe 60 players in it, maybe 60. These guys were playing against, in, our, in my bitty days from down here in New Orleans, we would pick, they would pick an all-star team from maybe 10 playgrounds that had 30 or 40 players in, in, in a league. So we were really at a disadvantage playing against those other cities. So at some point you gotta make a decision to play your best players. And the other guys were used to run in and run in and out of the game to spell those guys for a minute so we could get them a good, a good blow and then get them back in the ball game. There's a book called Outliers. Have you ever heard of it? No. It's, uh, it was written by Malcolm Gladwell. And in that book, the author tells a story of a hockey team that did really well. I think they won a national or a world championship. And what he attributed it to was the fact that most, if not all, of the team was born near the cutoff date. So the cutoff date being the date at which 
it's decided whether you play as a 12-year-old, as an 11-year-old, etc. Our team was comprised of a lot of guys that were born near the cutoff date. So, for example, if I was in seventh grade when we made that world championship run, half of our team would have been in eighth grade, if not more than half. So we had a lot of guys that were born September, October, November, December of 79. What, what month was Scott born in, your son? October 79. Okay. So what he, the story he tells in that book is that the players being older as 12th, and this was a high school team, so he used the ages of early teenage years, that they're so much older than their peers, which gives them a huge example, or I'm sorry, a huge advantage because of the maturity. And what happens is they make an all-star team, and then when you, when you play in an all-star season, sometimes that can last three and four months. And so you're given all of that additional benefit of coaching and playing together. And so it just, it's like a compounding snowball rolling downhill where you just get this talent pool and you get better and better. And so when I was reading that book, I was like, oh my goodness, we had that because our better players, your son, uh, Clint Adams, all of those guys, Brett Bellello was born in February. Um, we were all closer to the cutoff date. Correct. Yeah. So now, they weren't picked that way. We didn't pick them that way. No. But these guys in the respective schools they were playing in, they were already playing junior high basketball. Right. So you're playing up in another level of competition. So when when they came to us, we kind of refined that. We just refined the talents of these guys. That, yeah. That's what I was after, to refine the talents. I wasn't picking them by their birth dates. Right. They just happened to have played up at a different level and had that moxie about them that they had more court awareness and they were better on the, on the floor. They knew how to play the game. Yeah. And, and, and from the previous two years, they already had good dribble skills. They had good passing skills. So those guys were almost a given that they were going to be on the team because they were the best players on their team in the uh, in the league yeah. so they were going to they were going to be on the team yeah and very mature right because we had to be mature in order to grasp what it is that you were coaching and so just using his example as an 8 year old you would be so much more mature than someone who is 7 and a half and so he would say that that person would make the all-star team as an eight-year-old, get four months extra of coaching, and then be that much better as a nine-year-old. Right. And so, yeah, I think we benefited from some of that. And it's, it's just cool to think about, like the Cox twins. I mean, those guys were so smart and so disciplined. You know, I mean, we just, everybody had a role to play. And I just, yeah, it's just awesome to, to reflect on that experience. But we don't do what we did if we didn't have you as a coach. So oh, I'm forever you. grateful. Thank you. Um, if you had to coach youth league basketball today, is there anything that you would do differently because of the changes in our culture? I mean, everybody, every player might want to hug after a made basket nowadays, right? Which, <laughs> would, you, do, would you change anything? I, I don't think so. Um, I, I would have to certainly look at the schemes we'd run, but it all starts with defense because you defense wins championships and offense sells tickets. So it, it all really goes back to the same thing. Uh, even after you guys moved on, 
I would get a call from an all-star coach and say, can you come take a look at my practices and see what's going on? And they would shoot slate. And you know my pet peeve was the 100% shot, the 100% layup. And I said, if you shoot a layup, that is a 100% shot. you got to make your layups. And we'd shoot the right-handed layup, right-handed, the left-handed layup, left-handed. We scouted teams based on how those guys handled the ball. Who was a good left-handed dribbler? Who was a good right-handed dribbler on the opponent's teams? And you could, when you've been around long enough, you knew who they were when, before the, the first quarter started. So I wanted to make sure we were all solid in those, in, in those respects. So it would have to be the same thing. Yeah. It would have to be the same thing. But to get back to, to what I was going to say, they shot the, the left-handed layup right-handed. And if you were left-handed, they were shooting a, the right-handed layup left-handed. So, and then they go right into scrimmaging. They just said, man, they're running up and down the court, running up and down the court. And uh, I said, do you, do you ever practice running any plays or shooting foul shots? Oh, they shoot foul shots during the, during, during, during the scrimmage that we're going to run. Okay. And, me, and they would, I would say, do you see anything else we need to do? I said, no, really, really don't see anything else you need to do. I, you know, he, he wasn't asking me what – he was telling me what he was going to do versus – what I would tell him what to do, and, and but the kids wouldn't sit still for it because they wanted to scrimmage. Come on, let's scrimmage. I want, I want to score the most points, you know, and somebody's going to score the most points. And, and even on our club, somebody was going to score the most points. It could have been Bradley. It could have been Clint. It could have been anybody. It was whoever was shooting the best that day, and, and we played so well as a team, you guys made sure that guy got the ball. Yeah, I think of scrimmaging as the candy, right? That was like yeah. a reward. When you let us scrimmage, that was a big deal. <laughs> and yeah, we loved it, but that's not where you get better usually. It's working on the fundamentals, and you had us mastering fundamentals. And I asked about the favoritism toward your own kid, or in your case, lack of favoritism, because when I went on to play as an eighth grade, ninth grade, 10th grader, I, I, was, I moved away from this area, and the coach's kid would hit in the three hole, and he'd be playing shortstop, and he could be the worst athlete on the team. And I saw that year after year, and I'm thinking, it's so obvious what the coach is doing. That, co that kid shouldn't have even been playing. And I'm thinking, Coach Tom would have never done that. You don't, you don't play your kid because, so that, that's something that'll stick with me the rest of my life. Hopefully I will have a kid someday that I'm coaching, and there's no way that if he's not a top five guy that he's, he's getting more playing time. If you talk to high school coaches today, you, know, you probably do, and or even go talk to Seth Thibodeau, or they'll tell you that some of the toughest habits they have to break are the travel ball habits of kids coming to them by catching one hand. I'm not that, not necessarily Seth, but high school catching with one hand. You don't get on the balls of your feet to catch a ground ball. Some of the hitting techniques are the worst you've ever seen, and it's. The travel ball is, is is causing a lot of that, and you'll sometimes online you'll see a coach complain even at the collegiate level about what travel ball is doing to the kids in general of in, in sports, and uh, the and that's one of the biggest things that we have to break is uh, is and when I help my youngest son coach a. 
uh, a team from your alma mater. They, we got to break, it takes a good month to break some of the habits of, because we've played this game where they're trying to go. That's what we always tell them. Scott and I have played this game at a level where you're trying to get to. So we know what we're talking about. And so we got to break some of those one-handed habits. So not wearing your sunglasses when you're playing in the sun field and uh, <laughs> checking the wind. And so how high the grass is. And, you know, we're just trying to bring some of that experience to them so that they would, they would uh, take it with them into the field. I heard a story about your college, or no, your high school coach, because he was somewhat of a legend around here. Correct. Did he have players thump their chest when they were approaching first base to try to deceive the umpire into thinking, maybe I shouldn't use the word deceive, but to try to mimic the sound of the ball hitting the glove so he would have them pound their chest as they cross first base? Is that a true story? No, I never heard that. I never heard that. No, I, I never heard that. I spent a lot of years with this guy. And in a couple of years, I spent sitting right next to him. That's how I learned the game because I wasn't, I wasn't a starter. So I was keeping the school book. Mm. And uh, the only time he would get mad at me is when I'd sharpen my pencil on the inside of the back cover so I could make a I could, I could write with a, 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 a better number and I'd draw a line. Uh, crisper, and he would he would fuss me. He said, "Hey, boy," he said, "Don't sharpen your pencil in the back of the cover anymore." <laughs> but he was he knew the ball, he knew the game, and is sometimes he was calling pitches back when it wasn't when it wasn't cool. He was making shifts on the infield back when that was never heard of. Uh, one of the legends of New Orleans, a guy by the name of Rusty Staub. I don't know if you know who I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Rusty Staub played for Jesuit, mm -hmm. and when my oldest brother was playing for Redemptorist, Redemptorist would make a shift on Rusty Staub back in the um, mid-50s. They were putting Staub, or, or late-50s on Rusty Staub. So, and, and, and Coach Thayard would call all the pitches for his pitcher, and if they knew he was calling the pitches, he would call it. He would have somebody else in the dugout putting a foot up on on, the, on for fastball and no feet for the curveball. Uh, he was he was always playing mind games with the coaches across the field. Mm -hmm. So he had one of the players doing this because who would think a player would be calling a pitch, <laughs> you know? But he would say curveball, you know, and the guy would mm -hmm. the guy would call a curveball. So it was it was all mind games and. And I was sitting there watching what he was doing. I said, is that how he gets away with all of this? <laughs> <laughs> so he was your high school coach, and then you went on to play at Nickel State for Coach Didier. Tell me about the drill. You told me a story about a drill that you would do for sliding into second base. Breaking up double plays? Uh, yeah, breaking up okay. double plays. We would, uh, the, the, the coach would say, we're practicing double plays today. So... The shortstop, the second baseman, and the third baseman, because we would practice steals to third base, so uh, he would have to wear the shin catcher shin guards. And uh, when he would wear it, and coach said, if you can get them, get them, meaning knock them down. And so those guys want to know what, what can they do to protect themselves? And he said, hit them between the eyes. So, which would make us slide and not get close enough to them to try and hurt him. So 
that's how we practiced and that's how we played. So the second baseman is wearing shin guards. Correct. And practicing taking throws from the shortstop and making and turning a double play. Turning a double play. And the runners from first base are coming into second. Sliding and, and trying knocking down. And this is in practice. This is in practice. <laughs> this is in practice. And we, it, it, uh, and it paid off. I mean, you knew, you know, with your experience, you know how close you get in the second base. And, you know, I can get this guy, I can knock him down. So the guy at first base is going to be, is going to be safe. But uh, we didn't know if anybody else was practicing that, but we sure did. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. It probably made you very tough. I think that's why we made it to the to the finals. You know, uh, we should have won. Like, we should have won, but uh, I just wanna, didn't happen. Uh, I want to talk about your faith because I know it's very important to you. For the four years that I played for you, or three years, you led us in prayer before every game. Can you talk about the role that your faith has played in your life? I come from a very religious family. Uh, my mom went to church every day. Uh, and when I retired, when, when, when you're raising the kids, I was out the door at 5 o'clock in the morning, 5.30, at the job site, probably get home just in time to change clothes and go to a practice or a ball game. Uh, it wasn't until, but my faith was, was still strong. We still had a, a a good strong faith because at that time we went to church every Sunday or Saturday for Sunday and we, and we still do most of the time it's with the, with the kids and uh, but when I retired something was kept telling me in my ear that you need to go to mass on every day and I for, for a couple of months I just let it I just kind of let it go I didn't I didn't know what what he was trying to tell me and uh, one morning I was every morning I'm up go get coffee for my wife and I and I'll catch up on the news for the, from the night and catching reading reading the online papers and my wife came in and said why are you dressed I said I'm going to church and she said are you sick <laughs> Uh, is something wrong? I said, no. I said, I'm answering a call. And I said, it's just in my head. I can't get it out of my head. And so I started going to church and I made friends at church and we all got little jobs to do first thing in the morning. I usually get there around 6.15 and, you know, really, really important stuff like checking the candles or making the can, make sure the candles are lit and, and, pushing all the books together on, in the pews and stuff, in, in the holders in the pews. But it, it's, it's something that I enjoy doing, and I, and I enjoy going to church. And, and the more I go, the stronger it gets. That's, that's the thing. It gets stronger and stronger. Your thirst for the Bible, when being a Catholic, even in Catholic school, we never read the Bible. You know, we're no, this priest today that I will talk about the Bible, which I find fascinating when you when he starts putting it in language you understand. So, so, every, but it, it it continually gets stronger and stronger, 
in that you have a thirst to, to read the Bible and do different, you know, do different things in the church. Now, I haven't really gotten over to be, you know, 100%, you know, like work at the church and all that kind of stuff. I, I just, I, I do little jobs around there if they need me. I said, look, I'm here every, I'm here every day. You need something, I'll, I'll be glad to help. Well, don't you want to be ahead of the ushers? No, <laughs> I don't want to be ahead of the ushers. Of the ushers. Uh, but I said, I'll be glad to usher, you know. So, but it, it does get stronger every day. And Judy's strong with it. Judy's had some health issues. Uh, my, my daughter needs surgery in, um, in December. Maybe that's the call. I, I don't know. I'm almost afraid to find out. <laughs> but, uh, and maybe maybe he's doing what needs to be done now. I I, I just don't know. But he he, he called me and, and I'm there. How long have you been retired? Three years. Three years. Do you remember a time when your faith was most tested? Well, it's, it's probably currently. Uh, the more you go and the more you thirst, what's happening in the church today with the abuse, with the priest, um, there are people that say, I don't go to church anymore because, you know, I don't like what's happening in the church. Well, that's a cop-out. I don't go to church because of the priest. I go to the church for the good Lord. So that, to me, is a, is a cop-out. But uh, I think today, it's, you know, if you look at the, 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 the abortion laws uh, that one of the parties are trying to pass, and, or, or, or abortion, when you can abort babies, that's, it's, it's really not abortion, it's murder. Uh, so I think it's being tested more now, and I think the younger kids are finding reasons not to go back or to join another religion because it's more what people tell them that they want to hear, not necessarily tell them what they need to be doing. So I think it, the biggest test is now. When I was when I was an altar boy coming up and I started reading the abuse of the priest in New Orleans. Heck, I served mass for some of those guys. You know, none, none of them tried anything uh, abusive with me. But on the other hand, I didn't see anything wrong with them. But, you know, I, didn't, I don't go to mass to see the priest. I go to mass to see the Lord. Many parents in this area send their kids to Catholic school, and you went to Catholic school. Correct. Why didn't you send your kids to Catholic school? It costs too much. Yeah. <laughs> That's good the cost of it is, is one thing. And, but what we, and, and believe me, now that I, I, I do things around the Catholic school in Thibodeau more, they're great, edu they're great educators. They get good educations. What we, the, what we did as parents is we, weren't, we were involved in the school. We were involved in if we could help our kids get a better teacher, we did that. Because, you know, people, a principal will say, ah, we don't do that. Well, <laughs> that's not true. They do it. So 
we would we would go and be involved in the school, go to the functions, and made sure our kids had good teachers, and our kids had a got just as good an education by by going to the, the public school. And it, just, Catholic school was just not in our budget. Fair enough. That's a good segue because I want to talk about the money side of life. You're now retired. You've been retired for three years after working for, you worked at Avondale Shipyards and Amelia and then at Texaco Chevron. You had 43 years total Correct. in the oil field. At what age did you know which age you were going to retire and how did you plan for that? Well, in a big oil company, you don't ever know when you're going to retire because they might retire you they might retire you for you for you uh, <laughs> they might they might tell you well today's your day to you know your job has been you know there is no more job i had a brother who was working for texaco and and he was in human resources and when uh when i signed up for texaco he brought the paperwork home and actually signed me up so i signed up for the savings plan before I hit the doors. So it wasn't very much, but I mean, I was contributing all these years and it comes out your check. He was right. It comes out your check. You don't see it. And it starts to bill because Texaco was matching you so much on a dollar. When my daughter got married, we, uh, we had to make a decision whether we wanted to go into our 401k and take the money out for her to be when she wanted to marry. So we wouldn't have a note. Or did we just want to borrow the money? It, it did, by this time, I'm making more more per month, so we could have done it. We we did it any either way. Well, we borrowed from the 401, but you are able to pay the 401 back, and with a little bit of interest. So we took that route, paid it all back. But all these years, it was building, and all these years, I started contributing a little bit more. When you could, when you could see where you could put another two percent in, we did that. We put it up to the max, and they were, if you were putting in 6%, they would match the 6%. I appreciate you sharing that because we talk a lot of on this podcast about the pursuit of financial independence and retirement. And I think you heard it here, folks. Save automatically. That is the key, right? Right Absolutely. out of your paycheck. You Absolutely. don't even see it. And now you are living comfortably. Do you um, have any plans in retirement, like a bucket list? Uh, well, I, we, we did do one. We went to New York. Uh, we went to New York. We love it. We want to go back to New York. Uh, we'd like to go to Washington. Uh, my wife has never been to Washington. I've been to Washington in some of my baseball playing days. The World War II Museum, believe it or not, I'm born and raised here. My dad was in World War II. I've never been to the World War II Museum. We, we want to go do that. And, uh, and, but the rest of the time, we're chasing grandkids or doing something with our kids. That's great. You've got six grandkids? Six grandkids, yeah. By the way, I live in Houston, have lived there for 20-something years, and I've never been to NASA. So I can totally relate to you not going to the World War II. I have Museum. been. We have been to NASA. <laughs> there you go. It's a, fan, it's a, fantastic, uh, it's a fantastic tour. Uh, cool. Knowing how your life has worked out to this point, what advice would you give to your 35-year-old self? Be true to your family and faith. I'm going to ask you some fun, quick questions. Your answers don't have to be quick, but this is a little exercise that we do here. Do you have a favorite book? Not really. I've, 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 I'm currently reading Rebels Yell, a uh, story about World War, uh, uh, the Confederate War, the war, early wars, and Dan Bongino's Spygate. You know, that's, yeah, 
I've heard you ask what's on your your reading stand or your nightstand. And uh, but reading always puts me to sleep. So (laughs) (laughs) and I don't care what time of the day it is. It gets worse when you retire. What coaches or which coaches have you most admired through the years? Not someone that you played for, but just somebody, you know, like an NCAA coach or any coach, pro coach. I was I was uh, really admired uh, two. Adolph Rupp for one. I mean, that goes way back. And uh, Rick Pitino. Well, Coach K, uh, Mike Shashevsky, uh, uh, Dean uh, was at North Carolina. Uh, I watched a lot of their basketball games to look at some of the things they were doing to see if I could simplify it to incorporate it in to some of the things that we actually did. So uh, I know Patino's has taken a, a, a rough beating here recently, um, but uh, I always thought he was a good coach. Uh, I, I even used Adolph's rough, Adolph Rupp's saying one time, and you may remember it, when we used to play uh, – the kids from down the bay in Golden Meadow and South, uh, uh, the uh, the Swest, Ross West, Ross West, and uh, Adolph Rupp used to always say about Pete Maravich. He said, "We're going to let him score as many points as he wants. We're just going to hold everybody else down." <laughs> and that's kind of what we did. I just kind of switched out on him and made him work for everything he got. And he used to get a bundle, but he never did beat us. And we all we always handled him pretty easily, and uh, we just made sure nobody else scored. And so he might have, he might have 45 points, or then he might have 50 for the game, and you know we beat him by 20. So, uh, but I, I did admire him, John Wooden. I, I looked for things from John Wooden to motivate. You know, how do you motivate 10, 11, 12 year old guys? You know, and, and to this day, I still don't know. I think hard work is what carried over to make us such a good basketball team we were. I agree with you. If you were coaching the Astros in game seven of the World Series, the roof is closed, the game is tied six to six, bottom of the ninth, Springer leads off with a single, and now Bregman is up at the plate with Altuve on deck. Remember, game tied six six to six, bottom of the ninth, Springer's on first, Bregman is up, Altuve's on deck. Do you bunt? I'll tell you why I ask you that question. Um, I, was, I asked a few people, I'm interviewing Coach Tom, what questions should I ask? And someone said that he liked to bunt a lot, and I assume it's because he played at Nichols, because Nichols tended to recruit fast guys. You, you and I were, were fast. Um, because they had a big yard and the wind always blowed the wrong way. So, yeah, I'm curious. Um, game seven of the World Series, roof closed, game tied 6-6, bottom of the ninth. Springer's on first, Bregman's up with Altuve on deck. Do you bunt? Well, I would say yes, but on the other hand, I don't think Bregman can bunt. <laughs> <laughs> so you either substitute for Bregman, which somebody you wouldn't who do. can, which you wouldn't do, who's somebody who could bunt, or... You know, Bregman can run pretty good, so maybe he could stay out of a double play. Wow, that's a tough one. <laughs> that's a tough one, you know. Um, I, I would say, no, I'd let him get away because he probably hadn't bunted all year. Mm. You're old school. 
that's I'm old, I'm old school. I would bunt. Yeah, I would bunt. You know, get the the, the winning run into into scoring position. And Altuve is a is a is a really good player. You know, uh, he he's coming off of injuries, but he's a good player. So I would say, I, I don't. I, you know, I, I was wondering why Bregman's still hitting second. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Well, they change that lineup up a lot. I've seen Bregman lead off. I've seen him in the three-hole. And I think that's due to injuries because mm-hmm. uh, Springer was injured. Uh, Altuve was injured. Maybe they'll get it back to where they need to be. They found this good young uh, left-handed hitter from they, they brought up from the minors. did all the home runs. Uh, you know, I mean, look, Bregman's hit almost 25 home runs this All-Star break. So, I mean, you do your bunt. Uh, maybe the All-Star third baseman. <laughs> and, uh, my old school says, yeah. My coach Didier says, "Yeah, but I don't. I I just don't see him bunting at all." Yeah. If someone dropped a million dollars in your lap tomorrow, what would you do with the money? I'd go right to my investment man, give it to him, uh, and tell him to invest it in something high risk, uh, you know. And said, "Now try and make my kids comfortable." Oh, nice. So you wouldn't increase your lifestyle at all? Nope, not a bit. Not a bit. Which decade of your life has been the best so far? I, when when I when I pull out the barbecue pit, now this is a, this is a kind of long story, and I, my granddaughter, who I told you that story about earlier today, um, she she's always seemed to be around me. Her and my two youngest grandkids, uh, I always tell her how I got lost in the fifties. You know, the, there's an old saying, if you listen to the 60s on 6 Sirius SM, XM radio, it's all 50s or 60s, between 50s and 60s music. You know, that was growing up time. That was, that was the best. Growing up, growing up down in the Irish Channel and you know, not having to worry about locking your doors or, you know, uh, somebody stealing your bike or stealing your car or anything like that. That was the best times. Mm. Just two more questions. What are you most grateful for? My family, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely, family and, and friends that I've made throughout the years, you know, I, that you go uh, go and do anything for me. Of which you're one, of course. I like to hear <laughs> that, Coach. I know that I have a lot of listeners who are coaching young kids right now my most of my friends are at the age where they have young kids and they're starting to coach them would it be okay if they contacted you if they had absolutely absolutely if i can help and i can be reached i got my tom abity 62 at gmail.com and my uh my other one is at tom abity 62 that's your email Uh, yeah Tomabity62 at gmail.com. At gmail.com. And then my Twitter account is at Tomabity62. Coach, I always refer to you as the best coach I ever had. Um, I really appreciate you being a guest on my podcast. I hope you enjoyed this. Thank you for loving me at a time that I needed it most. It really means a lot to me, Coach. You're welcome. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Friends, thank you for joining us today. I know that you can be listening to listening to just about anything right now, but you chose to be here with us, and I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your friend. You can give us a rating on iTunes. All of that is much appreciated, so thank you. 
Also, you can follow my adventures on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks. <laughs>